Okay, my name is Rena Gade, Renegade, and this is my story from the inside. I've done four years of counselling now about just being enough because a lifetime of just feeling like maybe those things, maybe I deserved that. Every beating, every rape, every every time somebody kicked me in the head while I was fucking begging on the street because I was homeless. Even going to jail, maybe I deserved that. That's, that's what trauma does to you. It just makes you feel smaller. In 2016, 65% of the women sent to prison in WA were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. They are just 3% of our state population. Last year, the Australian Law Reform Commission reported that up to 90% of women incarcerated are survivors of family or other violence. 80% of the Aboriginal women in prison are mothers. The impacts upon children of mothers who are sent to prison are devastating and can cause lifelong damage, particularly upon their health and mental health. In the earlier days of me being with my partner, We'd probably been together for about a year. When Crystal was born, I ended up having to say enough is enough when he collapsed in front of the kids without me there. And the kids were like on the phone screaming to me that um, daddy's dying, what can we do? I was at the shops. So I asked him to leave and not in a very good way. I ended up relapsing for about six weeks. So I went into quite a tizzy when I had to separate from him. Not only did I go on a binge, but he also picked up again and did some pretty horrendous things that led to me having to take out an apprehension order. So the family really thought that I was just the devil. Six months later, when he actually passed, I literally had nobody. When he passed, a chain of events and just being just just a whole range of things led to me losing my house. I'd had a private rental for five years because I had been doing um, traffic control and running a traffic control cruise down in Albany. And Ron had been looking after the kids, but we were both drinking like very heavily prior to us part, uh, parting ways. When I lost the house, um, it was only a matter of weeks before DCP allowed his sister, who was very angry at me, to take my daughter, um, my youngest daughter, out of my care. Two months later, I was driving around in Denmark. I'd, been, I'd gone back over to Denmark, a small country town. The police knew that I wasn't doing well. They'd actually called me in and said to me, sat me down a couple of times and said, are you getting help? Like, you are seriously displaying behaviours that we are concerned about. I was, I was travelling around in a, in a van that had like spray painted all over it because when I was losing my mind I'd let the kids they'd come over to visit once and I'd let them take the spray cans to my van so my van was just like it was a mess and I just packed it full of like birth certificates, photos, all of this precious stuff. One night about midnight, I was driving down the main street. It was very, very quiet. I think it was a Sunday night. And these two police in an unmarked car pulled me over. Um, 
Anyway, they didn't want to search the van or anything. They looked, they asked me for my license. And again, unbeknownst to me, because you no longer have rego stickers on the windscreen, so I had nothing staring me in the face saying your car's not registered. And, and what I also didn't know was that I hadn't, I didn't realise that I hadn't put the transfer papers in either. So when I'd bought this car off a drug dealer, it was still registered to a man who was in prison at the time for murdering somebody. So these two younger cops, and I'm sure they'd seen me around and I'm sure they had, you know, had direction from the higher bosses who had spoken to me about my behaviour being concerning. When they pulled me over, they asked for my licence and one cop went back to the car and he was ages, he took forever, like it was, for me it seemed like it must have been half an hour. It was probably about 10 minutes though, to be honest, while this other copper stood at my door with my door open, my, my driver's door. Anyway, as I saw the younger cop coming back, my brain just went, fuck, these guys are going to throw me in the back of that car and kill me. I just, I, I, was, I was in what you deem psychosis. It was not drug psychosis. I just lost my mind. I was traumatised, I was terrified. So as this younger cop starts walking back to the car and I'm looking at their vehicle thinking, this is an unlicensed car, what if these are fucking bikers or something that are gonna throw me in the back of the car? So I put my foot on the accelerator, took off and the door swung and it just missed the cop that was standing next to the car. So I completely freaked out, but I pulled around the corner and realised, shit, I need to pull over, fuck, what am I doing? So I've pulled over and the cops had caught up with me and obviously the adrenaline was pumping because they just came to my door, dragged me out onto the pavement and were holding my arms behind my back and I was screaming at them, you're scaring me, you are fucking scaring me. men with my hands behind my back and my face in the pavement. I didn't know what was going on. And they tried to drag me to the back of their station wagon and throw me in the back of the car. So I did what any good renegade does. And I just stretched out and I, I locked myself into a, a lock-on position so they couldn't actually get the door closed. They could get one half of me in but the other half of me would be holding the door open. One cop's on either side of the car, both trying to drag me in. And at this stage, I'm just, I'm terrified. All I can think is they're about to take me off somewhere and throw me in a hole. I remember looking at the older cop who's at my legs and they had my head in the door and they're both yelling at each other and I'm just screaming, you're scaring me, you're scaring me. And this cop looked me straight in the eye, pulled out his baton and smashed my knee. <laughs> Which of course made me bend. <laughs> they closed the doors and as they sat in the front, I've opened the back door and gone to jump out. But my knee is gone. I, I have no knee. <laughs> so I fell flat on my face. They got me back into the car and at the end of the day, they arrested me for driving an unlicensed vehicle, failing to provide a breath test. <laughs> um, escape police twice. Resist arrest. <laughs> they um, took me to Albany 
regional, which is a male prison, and I was kept there for a week. When it came up to court, they refused to give me remand because I had no address, which meant that they moved me up to Bandia. So this is my first, I'm 38, I've been through some trauma. I was still very, very lost in my mind. I, I remember making little picnics in the, in the cell where I was in Albany, thinking that people were going to come in and, and help me and make it all better or bring my kids to me. They just needed to get me somewhere safe, like I really was living in a different world. Bandyart was... Some of the women I met in there were extremely scary. And some of the women, I remember when I was in the second unit and I'd come off suicide watch for like the third time. Um, and this is one of the old units. So it's disgusting. The, the conditions in there are absolutely vile. It was really heartbreaking. Um, to look around at, at roll call each night and see that, like, I don't know where the statistics come from, but I'm, I'm telling you, 70 to 80% of those women are Indigenous. Yeah, but I remember this woman was brought in and doubled up, so she's sleeping on a throw-down mattress on this cell. So once she was down, she was, her head was right next to the toilet bowl, and then you had about maybe a foot of room as you walked out the door. So every morning you'd have to get up, she'd have to put her bed on top of my bed, which also means that through the day there's nowhere to sit and relax if you actually aren't working. And that's the worst thing about in there is the time that just goes so very slowly. My solicitor came from Albany to ask me to sign papers for all three of my my minor children um, signing over custody to the relative families that they were with because DCP had threatened to take them back into care if I didn't. I walked out of that jail with a pair of boots that weren't mine, no socks, no bra. That's what I had left of my life I, because when they had arrested me they'd also towed my van which had every last precious thing that I could keep safe, they towed it and they crushed it. George O'Neill, who's <laughs> very controversial, but, but also the most beautiful man, lovely man, he bailed me out on Christmas Eve uh, 2014 um, and gave me um, a roof over my head until um, I came to trial, I think that's what it's called, until my case came up, which was three months later. The three months after my release and whilst awaiting trial were the fucking hardest I've ever been through. I've had lots of times in my life where new traumas and old traumas compounded have, have put me in a suicidal state, but nothing like this. This was, it was like, when people talk about rock bottom, Oh my God, because you always hit rock bottom and then you think there can't be anything lower. Yeah, <laughs> there you can. Never felt so destitute. Uh, when I did get out of jail, I discovered that Centrelink had so very kindly put $16,000 in 
into my account very kindly I'll be paying that back for the next 10 years the day that I got told that um, okay they would give me a community-based order where I could go to Serenium I, I I'd planned it and I thought about it and I'm a coward and I thought the only way I can kill myself is to get enough heroin to kill me I spent $12,000 handing out wads of cash to strangers while I'm sitting on the street in the middle of Perth just begging someone to bring me back heroin. I wasn't going to get what I was looking for. Again, George O'Neill put me into the medical house and got me back to a state where Serenium was happy to accept me. So I spent six months at, uh, it's called Serenity Lodge in Rockingham and the first three months I literally couldn't speak. I was that traumatised and that like just and and that just over life really just what is the fucking point? I think um, my absolute heartfelt gratitude to the manager at that time. She was an amazing, beautiful woman who took me under her wing and she became my counsellor. But counselling was essentially every afternoon she'd take me for a walk to the beach and we'd just walk. And that's how I came back to life. I know what it's like to keep trying and you just keep finding that no matter what, you can't, you can't change your behaviours enough to stop you from falling into those same traps again. It's like, you know, I once heard someone tell a story about, you know, when you're travelling down the road, it's, it's human nature that if you know a place, a city, say, or a town, and you're travelling down a road and say it's dark and it's late and particularly being a woman, car, foot, whatever, you're always going to, the urge is always going to be there to travel the road you know, you know, travel the road that that is familiar to you because if you take another street and you don't actually know where it leads, you can't guarantee your safety, you can't guarantee anything. So this is, this is how people end up in this roundabout ended up staying for a year to damn well make sure that they couldn't just walk in and say that I hadn't done what they wanted to do. I, I stayed as long as I could. I, I really fought my way through rehab, fought it hard. It, it is the renegade nature. I love a good, I love a good fight, um, particularly if I'm able to fight for someone else. It's so much easier as a woman to fight for somebody else than it is for yourself. You almost feel a bit guilty when you're fighting for something for yourself. Rehab wasn't all bad. Rehab was, it learnt me a lot of things that in 38 years I'd never been able to learn about boundaries, about self-care, about gratitude. From the day I got Charlie back, the gratitude, and even today, like, I get overwhelmed at how grateful I am to have her back. What's good about being Charlie? good mum and having my favourite pets. Who are your favourite pets? Fatty Mickey and Snow and Pickles. Jenkins and Zen. So what have we got there? We've got two cats. We've got two cats, one rabbit and one dog. What's it like it's living here with mum? It's good because we don't have any weird neighbours besides those ones. And, those <laughs> ones. 
and I really like my bedroom because it's kind of big and it's lots of fun living with mum because we get do stuff all the time. She'll tell you that what hurt her more than watching me go through the grief after losing her dad was being separated from me. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond all measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented and fabulous? Well, actually, who are you not to be? You, I am, a child of the universe. Our playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that others won't feel insecure around you. We are meant to shine as children do. We are born to make manifest the glory of the great spirit that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give others permission to do the same. As we are freed from our fear, we, our presence automatically liberates others. I have to ex accept that the universe has a plan for me. It sounds a bit hippie, but if I don't, if I don't have a, a deep belief that there is a bigger picture that maybe I don't see, or if I allow other humans to have the power, as in they are the most powerful person, then I just would break again. My brain would break now, you know, just retelling my story. And I have to believe that, that actually I've, I'm a good person. I'm a good, good person and I've done good things and the stuff I've been through, it's been for a reason. I can't say that I would have liked anything else to have happened at that time because otherwise I wouldn't be where I am today. What I want to see happen is for systems to change. If we invested our state's resources in emergency accommodation for vulnerable women and children, live-in drug and alcohol rehabilitation centres, or better mental health outreach services for those in crises, Rena's story would likely have had a very different outcome. There is currently no Aboriginal community controlled live-in rehabilitation facilities in the entire southwest region of WA. Only this year in March was WA's first therapeutic refuge for women with complex needs fleeing domestic violence announced. It will be completed in 2021. By investing earlier on in providing critical supports for struggling people to build healthy families, we can reduce the likelihood of incarcerating women like Renna and create safer communities for all of us at significantly less cost both economically and socially. Social Reinvestment WA are calling upon the WA government to commit to investing in healthy families and safe communities instead of building new prisons. They can do this by committing to invest $190 million of the next state budget, the same amount being spent in just one year to expand Casuarina Prison, into early intervention and prevention measures, above and beyond their existing budgetary commitments. It costs $205 a day to imprison someone, but just $28 a day to supervise them in the community while they rehabilitate. Our approach needs to be visionary and evidence-based. Responsive, not sensationalised or reactive. It needs to address the underlying causes of offending. Social reinvestment makes economic and social sense 
It's better for all of us, better for families and better for our community. Let's work together for an effective and connected approach to justice. To find out more about the solutions and what you can do, head to Social Reinvestment WA's website. Stories from the Inside is brought to you by Social Reinvestment WA, a coalition of West Australian organisations trying to build a better justice system. It was produced on the lands of the Wujuk Noongar people. We pay respects to their people, past, present and emerging. The podcast is written and produced by Anthony Stewart, with research by Donna Self. Sophie Stewart is the executive producer. Music by Ned Beckley and Equate Studios. For more information or to get involved in the campaign, head to www.socialreinvestmentwa.org.au.